Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Secret Birds HQ podcast. And this is podcast episode number 75. And this evening, I am joined by special guest Candice Thompson Zachary. Hello, Candice. Hi, Joanne. So happy to be here. Yeah, so glad to have you on as a guest on the podcast. So, Candice is a Brooklyn resident, born and raised in Trinidad and Tobago. She's a dancer, a choreographer, a certified fitness professional, and cultural producer. She's a graduate of Adelphi University's BFA in Dance with the Root St. Denis or St. Denis Award for Excellence from the Dance Department and is currently a first-year candidate in the Performance Curation Program at the Institute for Curatorial Practice in Performance at Wesleyan University. She's the beauty and brains behind Can Dance Fit, a fitness and movement company, and she's got really nice Instagram posts as well of her jumping and Lots of cool stuff all over the place. <laughs> and she's our artistic director of Contempo Caribe Dance Project and the founding executive director of Dance Caribbean Collective, also known as DCC. Um, Dance Caribbean Collective is a collaborative and organizing body, creating platforms for artists developing work from a Caribbean perspective to show their work within the local diaspora community in NYC. Candice has been instrumental in creating several programs, bringing visibility and greater insight for Caribbean dance, including designing the annual New Traditions Dance Festival. You have to tell us a bit more about that. And Contempo Carib, her choreography and performance dance, sorry, performance project, um, embodies the plurality of experiences within the Caribbean diaspora through various research-based dance works. Yes, plural is a good word because there's... We're quite a melange, aren't we? In Caribbean. Yeah. 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 We're, we're not one thing. <laughs> and her repertoire has been performed at Dance Space Project, Mark Morris Dance Center, Brooklyn Museum, and Coco Dance Festival in Trinidad and Tobago. Candice also does in-home training for clients in Manhattan and Brooklyn and is a pioneer in the soca dance genre. Other special accreditations include being a part of the inaugural Dancing While Black Fellowship Cohort, of 2015-2016, honored in Adelphi University's 26-2017 10 Under 10 program for young alumni, being a part of the Dixon Place Artists in Residence program for fall 2017, and a candidate in the 2018 Executive Program in Arts and Culture Strategy through National Arts Strategies and the University of Pennsylvania. So, welcome, welcome, Candice. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yes. And Candice is a culture maker. Yes, indeed she is. <laughs> all the things, all the things. All, all the things. Okay, so Candice, tell us about you outside of this illustrious um, bio that I just read, illustrious and impressive and all of that stuff. Who are you and, you know, how did you get to where you are now and doing all these amazing things that you're doing? Right. Um, okay, so let's start from the beginning. I'm from Trinidad and Tobago. I was raised in um, a small town neighborhood called Barataria in North Trinidad. Um, went to, you know, primary school, secondary school, but early on my mother put me in dance. So I trained at a school called La Dance Caribe. Um, my teacher, Heather Henderson Gordon, was um, a graduate from the Juilliard School. Oh, wow. So, you know, at a young age, I was exposed to um, modern dance techniques like Horton and Graham. So like these techniques that were really big in the modern dance scene, mm. I had exposure to them from the age of six. And Dunham dance and all that kind of stuff. Exactly. So, mm. uh, yeah, I grew up dancing both ma ba ballet and modern. Um, mm. You know, I did the Royal Academy of Dancing exams every year. Wow. Um, but all of our performances through my school would always incorporate some kind of local culture into whatever the choreography or presentation was. So it's like I had the best of both worlds mm. for most of my, um, my dance training, at least. Right. Um, but yeah, to me, like my goal then was really just to be like the best dancer that I could be. And I saw myself, especially once I hit my teen years, being this illustrious modern dancer. Like I wanted to dance with the Graham company, the, these mm. famous companies that I had heard of. Yeah. Um, that was my dream. And so like when I left the, when I left Trinidad at 19, I think, or 20, 20. Okay. okay. 
to study at Adelphi University in Long Island, mm-hmm. like that was my goal to be a dancer. Like I never thought of myself as being an entrepreneur, never thought of myself as being a choreographer even, never thought of myself as owning my own business. Like none of that occurred to me. All I knew was that I had this, this um, dance bug, <laughs> this like fire under me that I needed to be on stage and I needed to be um, this like virtuosic performer. That was my goal. Uh, okay. But, you know, side by side with that, I was a pretty strong academic student so I did the A-level exams in languages so I did French Spanish and English literature at the A-level exams I did really well like I've always been a really good academic student mm-hmm. um, and my mother would always comment to me um, that I almost did sociology and I felt like if I had done that maybe my path would have gone differently but um, she's like mm-hmm. you know you're in this dance thing but you're really like I feel like you you are wasting you you know <laughs> yeah. um, yeah. They'd always be like, ah, you had so much potential, like on in this academic, on this academic side. Um, yeah. But anyway, so that was my history in Trinidad, and then once I came here, you know, did the degree, um, graduated, started auditioning, um, got into a few companies, and but you know, right away, entering the New York scene. Oh, the other part of it is that in I graduated in two thousand eight, and we all know what happened in two thousand eight, right? The financial crisis. Exactly. So, um, um, who could who could forget that? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And yeah. so we all know that you know the arts are basically at the mercy of available resources. Yeah. So at the time, like there were still things were fine for a while because it takes a while for things to trickle down. But by two thousand, the end of two thousand nine, two thousand ten, like it was bad. There were no more like the auditions were drying up. Mm. there wasn't that much out there but you know I was in a company that had figured out how to sustain themselves um sort of without those big jobs those big grants so I was able to keep dancing with um like professors from school they would pass me on to other opportunities so you know I I was able to to stay in the field at least even if that wasn't like paying my bills full-time um but what also happened was that each new venture that I would go into, each new company that I would go into, I would always end up doing administrative work, mm. right? And or strategy building work. So the first company I danced with, um, In Spirit, a dance company run by Crystal Brown, I ended up being her assistant, administrator's assistant, which meant that, um, you know, I was like sort of helping her think through decisions, doing research for her for um, new ventures that the company wanted to take writing letters, um, basically anything she needed done that required like grinding. Mm -hmm. I was the one doing it. Um, and making sure that like she stayed whole in the process of doing all that she was doing. Um, and then I went on to work with Makeda Thomas who runs an institute in Trinidad and Tobago, um, that like focuses on contemporary thought around and scholarship around Caribbean dance. And I was a coordinator for that program for about three or four years. Again, like figuring out how to find resources, figuring out how to partner with organizations, figuring out how to get, um, you know, students and scholars interested in the program so that they didn't want to come to Trinidad, mm-hmm. um, working with uh, faculty. So, you know, like I was always in this role of strategizing mm-hmm. uh, and figuring out how to keep some of these um, like, yeah, cultural institutions, not in, like in the big sense of what we think an institution is, but institutions in themselves, how to keep them going, regardless of how much resources we had available to us. Mm. Um, and so that was, yes, that was sort of my life for quite a few years. So it's like performing, working in, a, in an administrative capacity, and then um, but you know, all while this is happening, I'm working other jobs to stay afloat financially because none of these jobs were able to support me fully. So yeah. I got trained as a personal trainer. So I was personal training. I was a Pilates instructor. I was a studio manager at one point. Um, like you name it, job I've done it. <laughs> that's that's quite normal in 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 your field, I think. And yeah. Act, you know, acting, performing, any kind of performing arts. I feel like that's quite the norm. Yeah. So, you know, we figure out ways to, to keep, to keep your life of, you know, viable, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
And then around 2014, I started choreographing. And then that's when things really shifted because I was like, you know, like I was creating these pieces that was about Caribbean culture, but I wanted to be able to like share them with people who would get it, who would like understand some of what I was talking about or playing with or manipulating. And then that's when the whole idea for Dance Caribbean Collective was born. And that, of course, sent me down a whole other, you know, path in terms of like leadership, basically. Because, you know, up until this point, I was like second in command. I was like someone's support. Mm. And now I was like at the head. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Mm. So what made you choose to leave Trinidad? Did you feel like you outgrew all of your opportunities there? Well, at the time, it, yeah, it was just in 2008, well, not even, two, that was what, 2005. Yeah. Things were different. There was no tertiary program for dance on the island. Oh, no? Okay. UWE doesn't offer, like, dance? They do now, but then no. Mm. Okay. Right. So, you, once you, and, yeah, once you left high school and you, like, grew out of your, your dance school, yeah. that was sort of it. If you wanted to do more, you had to leave. Or you could just, you know, there were, there were companies and pick up groups here and there that, or, you know, I could have gone into teaching um, part-time. But yeah, if I wanted to go further, I had to leave. That, that was just what everybody that I knew did. So you, so you did A-levels in languages. And, yeah. and then, you know, after that, you decided, okay, I'm, I'm going to leave. Or did, did you do A-levels and then you worked for a bit and then you left? Uh, yes. So did A-levels. And then actually, um, I got this scholarship to a school in Canada mm. for a one-year prof- professional training program. So I went to Canada for a year. Nice. Um, and I think that that was also another like pivotal moment because I was training as opposed to just training like five, six hours a week or as much as eight maybe in Trinidad, like there I was training like 40 hours a week. It was my job. And was this at a university in Canada? No, it was with a company called Ballet Creole. So they were, they're mm. a dance company. Oh, but wow. They had a professional training program. Nice. Okay. And then you did that and then you went back home to Trinidad. Right. And then I worked in the, at the time there was the OJT program. I don't know if they probably still have it. It's like an on the job training program that the government was subsidizing. Okay. So I went to work in the ministry of education. I lasted a month. (laughs) (laughs) I called my mother crying after a month. I was like, mom, I can't do this. I can't do it. And she's like, okay. And then, but thankfully uh, a friend of mine worked at a high school and they were looking for teachers. So I actually taught language for a year in high school. Nice. Yeah. Okay. And then I left. So I had, there was like two years in between finishing A-levels and going to Adelphi. Wow. And then you applied, you got into Adelphi and the rest, as they say, is history. Right. Yeah. Nice. Okay. So good. So today, Candice is going to talk to us about Charting a life as a culture maker. And I think this is such an incredibly important topic because there's so many people that want to get into, I mean, and you said this in, in the beginning, you never saw yourself as an entrepreneur and all of that stuff, but you, you have become one. And I think that's indicative of, of the way the performing arts world is now. You're not, you're not just a dancer. You're not just a teacher. You're an entrepreneur. You're a creative entrepreneur. You're running a business. You have to, you have to build business models and sustain yourself and, and all of that good stuff. So how do we then go about charting a life as a culture maker? Maybe you might want to explain what a culture maker is. Right. Um, you know, yeah. I think that, that the definition of that is, is up to the individual, but okay. I think culture maker means that you have some sort of skill and or inquiry that mm. you want to present to the market, to, to people, to society. So for me, it's dance. For somebody else, it could be film. For somebody else, it could be visual art. Mm. Um, so it's, I think culture maker is more, um, is more about like a catch-all term because it's not just the discipline that you're in. It's the fact that you're creating a market for that discipline. So if I'm a dancer, it means that I am creating the platform for my work to get seen and to get appreciated and to get, um, yeah, consumed sort of. 
Mm, okay. I'm, I'm changing the field by my presence, through my presence and through my engagement. Right. So you, but you believe that it's up to the individual to decide what, how, how they're going to define being a culture maker. Yes, exactly. Because for everybody, it's different. Yeah. When I think of a culture maker, I think of someone that's creating what then eventually becomes the trends. The, um, I mean, it's that too. Like you're changing yeah. the field to suit your, your vision. Yeah, but I also see them as curators and protectors of, uh -huh. of, of culture, innovators of culture, kind of like, you know, the sustainers of culture too. There's a, there's a lot of different things that come to my mind when I think of culture maker. Yes, yeah. And I think that all of those are valid. It just, yeah. It's just like which part of it do you hold on to? Which part of it um, resonates with what you're doing? Yeah, for sure. So how do you chart a life as a culture maker? Are there, are there some steps? Are there some tools? How, how does one navigate their way? I think, so well, one, I think that we're in a different time now mm -hmm. where culture making is, it's trendy in a sense, right? Mm -hmm. Like where we are living, I think, in a time where cultural identity is being played out on the main stage or in in public thought, in, public, in the public arena, in a much more visible way than it has been. Mm -hmm. um, even in my short time in like observing these things, uh, like just thinking about like when I graduated and when, you know, me thinking about my life as a dancer and then like how the field operates now. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's, it's different. So it's like, I think the being just a dancer mm -hmm. is no longer valid <laughs> like you have to be able to do more you have to be able to basically create the bridge between your work and your possible audience yeah yeah so sure. it's mm. for one it's recognizing that that's that's the gig that that's what you're signing up for in a sense mm. um and i think that most people recognize that like that's why you know you have people at 15 and 16 with you know thousands of people following them on instagram like they've re realized how to like capture the hearts and minds of people and then monetize those things, mm -hmm. right? So that whatever their skill is, whatever their interest is, uh, becomes viable, becomes marketable. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, if you're going about it, the first thing you really need to do is invest in yourself and invest in your craft. Mm, yeah. Right? Yeah. So especially in your like younger emerging years, um, I feel like spending the time investing in whatever your, your curiosity is or whatever your goals are, whatever your vision is for your like cultural work, your, your artistic work, your creative practice mm -hmm. is investing that time then. Because I feel like once as an emerging artist, emerging creative person, once a certain amount of time has passed, it's like you lose that edge. Right. Mm -hmm. Like if you're 23 and you just moved out, you just finished college and you can live at your parents' house for two years and work on your product, work on your dance company, work on whatever, like that's time that you'll never get back. Mm. Right. Cause once you get older, like you have more responsibilities, blah, blah, blah. So I feel like investing, once you identify that this is what you want to do, it's like investing the time once you have it. Yeah. And, and and leveraging the resources at your disposable at your disposal even if you they don't look like money. So like the fact that you can live at home, that's mm. a resource. <laughs> of right? course. Of course, that's called cost cutting like 100%. Exactly. You you don't have you don't, your overhead is like reduced. Yeah. If you uh, work yeah. at a dance studio and you can get studio space for free, there you go. That's mm. another resource. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For me, at one point, I also worked at night. Okay. So it meant that I could, during the daytime, I could take class, I could go to auditions, you know what I mean? So, like, I had that as a resource. Like, I had much more available time during the day than most of my friends because they worked during the daytime. Mm. So it's like, yeah, it's figuring out what your resources are at your disposal and figuring out how to leverage them into creative into creativity yeah into production and finding ways to defray costs in in, in every area of your life <laughs> really yeah, Whether, basically. yeah 
Yeah, and I feel like dancers can't, because when I was young, I used to dance a lot as well, and I had a dream of being a dancer, but my parents cut that short really quickly. They were like, mm, no. <laughs> and, yeah. um, but I think, you know, I'm 40, so I feel like back then it was different, because I think my parents were kind of like, dance? Well, you're only going to have, it's like being a model, you're going to have a short lifespan, and then mm -hmm. what are you going to do? And I felt like every dancer that I looked up to what I noticed was they would join a company if they got lucky. They would mm -hmm. tour. They would tour, you know, for a number of years, and then they'll be out, and they they wouldn't have anything else left to do, and they ended up becoming like yoga teachers and Pilates teachers. But that was back then, you know. But right. now it's like there's so many opportunities. You you're not just a dancer. You're also an actress, and you're doing mm -hmm. theater, and you're teaching, and there's so you're an entrepreneur. It's just the world is, is, has just opened up a lot of possibilities for the, the modern dance. You know, it's not like how it used to be back in the days at all. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, it, yeah, we're living in a, in a much different world. Um, so many yeah, my, my, I think with my parents too, well, my mother especially, for some reason she believed in this dream of me being a dancer, but she always, she was like, listen, you can, I think it, it, that fact actually like motivated her to support me because she's like, okay, you can only do this dancing thing for so long, but you could also go to school when you're 50. You can get a PhD when you're, when you're 50 or 60. You know what I mean? Like your mm -hmm. academic career or your academic pursuits or things that are more like legitimate will never go away. <laughs> yeah. But this dance thing, you can only do for so long. It's true. If you can do it and yeah. do it well, then now's the time. But I feel like it's so good and it's so unique, I think, and almost rare to have, you know, Caribbean parents and more traditional conservative parents who support you because a lot of the time there, it's just a risk, you know, like you yeah. tend to see them kind of stare you into, you know, the, the, the normal three subjects, medicine, law, engineering, you know, it's like, that's what you do or business and anything outside of that is a huge risk. And it's kind of like, well, what are you going to do with that? You know? So I think it's, it's great that your mother envisioned you that way and, and believed in you enough to push you forward to do that. That's really, really good. Cause a lot of parents are nervous when their kids say things like, uh, I, I'm creative. They're like, well, what does that mean? <laughs> right. right. Yep. And you're like, no, we're, we're all crazy. I know that I was lucky. I know that I was lucky. Yeah, I think, I think you were because a lot, I meet a lot of people who are actually transitioning, like leaving careers and, or have left careers and transitioned into creative things now because they feel like they have the confidence to do it or maybe they feel like they've reached a point in their first career where they've had some success or they've maximized themselves and now they're actually doing what that creative thing they wanted to do whether it was you know painting like I, I know someone that um was an accountant and now she's a painter and I mean she's yeah. like she's like a Van Gogh she's incredible but yeah. you know she never she never had that the 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 a possibility or the time or or no one ever really pushed her to explore her craft and now she's doing it you know like in her late 40s so i uh -huh. feel like that's that's really nice that you can do that yeah i mean and i think the other part of it is is like if you if you start early right and and identify what your calling is early and like figure out how to invest in it early to create like these products find ways to make your you're offering marketable, that's one way. But then there's this other way that sort of, that is, I feel like very popular now, which is like people go through the system and do the traditional careers, become doctors, lawyers, marketing agents, whatever. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, at like 35 and 40, they're like, I've had enough. I'm going to mm -hmm. do something else. But mm -hmm. the thing is that they've set up, you know, they're, they're probably financially stable. They've invested yeah. in things. You know yeah. what I mean? So then mm -hmm. there's that way of approaching it too, because then you sort of take the risk factor out of it just a bit, because, you know, if it doesn't work out, they could just go back to their old life. And they've invested in themselves. I think there's an element of confidence that people forget. Like once you've gone off and had a career, you've invested in yourself and the confidence is there and you feel good. You're like, okay, I can do anything now because I've done this. And like you said, they have a fallback plan. You know what? If this doesn't work out, I have my CV. I've got my degrees and my experience. Mm -hmm. I can always go back into this world. There may be a few changes. I might have to retrain a little, but I've got that fallback plan. And I think that's the risk 
you take when when you know when you go straight not knowing like oh my god is yeah. it gonna work but i think it's it's a completely different climate now and you can jump right into anything i believe the internet has opened up all sorts of possibilities i think now for yeah. creative for creative people for culture makers Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yep. you can do all sorts of stuff now that you couldn't do before. But ha- let's talk about monetizing because you mentioned that, which is so right. important. How yeah. do we make the money as culture makers? What yeah, do we you do? see that you know that's that's a hard one. Mm. Um, so yeah, one is you know I guess figuring out what it is about what you do that makes people clue that makes people clue in that makes people pay attention. Mm. And some people have like the rare gift that they are able to identify that thing really quickly and turn it into a moneymaker. Other people, it takes a much longer time. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's like finding that niche, right? So it's either like a niche in terms of your knowledge and that matches with a certain audience, Mm -hmm. niche in terms of a product or service that you think your audience needs or is willing to pay for mm-hmm. um yeah like what is the role that what you're doing plays in the life of the average consumer or in the you know like your target demographic or whoever you're 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 talking to right whose mm-hmm. ears you have um and but you know that comes especially in this idea of like of culture making you know and, you know like i'm caribbean so like i feel like i'm watching how a lot of people are able to spin their cultural um heritage Mm -hmm. and their cultural capital into into like monetized products Mm -hmm. um but it also comes with a whole set of ethical considerations right so it just depends on how comfortable you are with selling a part of yourself in a sense Mm. talk a little bit more about that you use some words there cultural capital what does that mean what's that I mean, okay, for instance, so I'm Trinidadian mm-hmm. and I feel like it is the best time to be Trini right now. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right? There's a carnival in every place, in every mm-hmm. island. You have monopolies like tribe who have a party in every place that there's a carnival. Mm-hmm. You have, um, yeah, everybody's trying to, everybody's tapping into the soca thing. Everybody has a soca dance fitness class. They have soca dance challenges. Mm-hmm. We have people organizing tours, like the whole carnival concierge business is a whole market in itself, a whole industry. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're a soca singer, like you're basically, you're working all year round now. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I think, so in terms of capital, like if you're born Trini, like in a sense, you've inherited a whole, <laughs> a whole heritage that you can just pull from and resell in a sense. Mm-hmm. So... But there are some people who have been able to, it seems like at least, easily turn that into money, into money, into something that they could sell. And, and why you say ethical lines is because it's sort of like, how much of yourself do you want to sell in order to make money? How much of your culture are you willing to sell in order yeah. to make money? And it's also how, how are you going to package that? How are you going to, yeah, monetizing culture is very, mm, yeah, it's one of those things. And it depends on who's doing it. I mean, if you're a Trini and you're monetizing your own culture, I guess that's less, that's less problematic than if you're not, you know? Right. Uh-huh. Yeah. But yeah, I see, I see where you're coming from. But it's how do you, understanding your cultural capital, what it is, and then how do you then use that to, to, to make a living? Right, exactly. And, you know, like, to some extent, I've done that with teaching soca. Like, I've been teaching soca for, like, the last four or five years. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, like, my, my brand identity, if for want of a better word, is sort of surrounding this, like, soca dance thing. Um, but, yeah, so there, there's, but there, you know, there are lines that, that certain, that you have for yourself about how much of it you're willing to monetize, how much of it you're not. Um, and so for instance, a few years ago, I thought about before the carnival concierge thing was big, I was like, Oh, you know, I really could do this. Mm -hmm. Um, but I quickly realized that like carnival to me is sacred. Mm. And like, it's at this point, it's like a ritual that I have with my family. Like I go home every year and that's when I see them. Like we go, me and my sisters go to fets together. You know what I mean? So like, I realized early on, I was like, see this carnival thing. 
I can't sell that because that's my time with my family. So whereas other people have no problem doing that, they're like, ah, whatever, I'll see you all whenever. I can, I can make this into a business. I can do this and still feel, you know, secure in myself and secure in what I'm offering to my clients, what I'm offering to the public. Mm. Um, but then again, yeah, then you have people who aren't West Indian, who aren't Caribbean, who are, you know, finding ways to tap into the market or mm-hmm. investing in folks who are, you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. there are things, yeah, ethical considerations, I guess is the best word that come up when, when you're making um, cultural commodities, basically. And it's mm. not, like the, the word itself sounds bad, mm-hmm. but, you know, it, you sort of have to do it or else the market will do it for you. Yes, I love I, want, I love what you just said, the commodification of culture. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about that, that's a whole other conversation all in itself, but that's really what it boils down to, you know. And like you said, if you don't own it yourself, trust you me, somebody else is going to. And they're gonna make a lot, they're gonna make it's gonna be very profitable for them. Yeah, exactly. Because they don't have those lines, right? They're not they don't have any they're they're willing to sell all of it (laughs) there's no there's no cultural sensitivity they if they're not from the culture they don't understand the nuance so they just do what they have to do to make money but i don't know is commodification of culture dangerous period irrespective of who is doing it whether you're from the culture or not i mean there i think that things get lost right Mm. um i mean like even carnival now like i for instance Growing up for us, for us, like in my family, we, we have a cousin that lives on the carnival route. So for years, my entire family, like who lives in South, who live in North, everybody would congregate at this, this, um, this office on carnival day. We bring food, whatever. And like, all we would do is basically watch the bands go by. Mm. Um, and you know, back then there were no ropes separating the bands. So like you could take a jump with a band. Mm-hmm. down the street and come back wait for the next band people were still artists were still singing on trucks so like we'd wait for the truck with marshall singing on it to jump mm-hmm. with him mm-hmm. wait for the truck with allison Hines singing um but now that it's so commercial and then back then also um bands weren't all inclusive yet well not all of them so people would still like stop buy stuff at the at, at the those little vendors on the street people would like come in ask us be like hey can we use your bathroom like, you know what i mean like there was a lot more interaction between who was playing math and who wasn't mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. but now with all this commercialization there's a rope separating each band mm-hmm. everything that you do within the band is taken care of right so that's two so people who like sell on the side of the street they're like they don't make that much money anymore like that whole industry has sort of dried up Mm -hmm. um and then people don't sing on trucks anymore because they don't want to do all that work um and Mm. people also don't come out to watch maths because there's nothing to watch really because Mm. the bands are all jumbled up blah Mm. blah blah but the people who play have paid for this amazing experience so that they're now the focal point. The focal point is no longer on the presentation of mass. It's about the individual playing this costume. Mm. Right? So, you know what I mean? Like you've lost like one, the role of the, of the spectator in carnival because there's nothing really for them. Mm. And then two, um, yeah, this, this idea of like interaction, like, you know what I mean? It's no longer like a public, it's no longer really public space. Like the, 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 the road is for the band itself and that's it. No one's there really. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, you, you lose things in the commodification, but again, like can yeah. you get away from that? Like what would be the alternative? I mean, you could use tourism as an example. I mean, tourism is a perfect um, example of commodification of culture. You know, you're, you're selling a cultural product, i.e. tourism, to meet uh, the consumer's demand, the consumer being the tourist. And we see what that has done to a lot of countries, not just in the Caribbean, but around the world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, but I mean, if, if that's what you feel that the best you can do, then I guess that's what you do. And... Yeah, I don't know. I, I feel very uncomfortable with the commodification of culture. I have to be honest. Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, I mean, and it rubs certain people the wrong way. I don't think it's a bad thing. I don't right. think it's a good thing, but it makes me uncomfortable because I feel like it's such a thin line and you see what happens when people sell their own culture. You see what happens when other people try to sell other people's cultures. And I don't think any, I think at the end of the day, nobody really gets it right. And it always has dire consequences, you know? Well, you know, I think now though, what's happening is that people are taking these considerations more seriously. Definitely. More conversations are being had as well. Yeah. Exactly. So more conversations are being had. People are taking it more, con more seriously. And I think people have a better understanding of who certain products are for. So now I think what's happening is that products are being created with Caribbean people in mind. Mm. Right? So it's like we, I, <laughs> I, you know, I could talk at length about this. Mm. But um, because of the i guess like progress and you know us a lot of our countries striving for first world status and all of that mm -hmm. like a lot of our practices and rituals have been commercialized or we don't practice anymore and so now they're basically there's a role now for them to be sold back to us mm. like now the products are not just for the the tourists or not just for the north american it's for us. We are the, we are the consumers now because mm. we're no longer like, you know, huddling in somebody's house to make our mask costume. Mm -hmm. like, we just go and buy one and be on our merry way. Mm. So it's, you know, now it, I think it works both ways. It's like we have to commodify our culture or monetize our culture for our own selves because we're so entrenched in, in um, you know, our yeah, we're so interested in capitalism and in progress and in development that there isn't that much room, I feel like, mm. for cultural practices on an individual level or on a, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And you, meant, you mentioned the key word here, capitalism, because we all have to remember that we operate in a capitalist system. And in some respect, you can say that people that create culture are, you know, the artist is really a product of the capitalist system yeah exactly because, you wouldn't have a job yeah, if, if yeah. we weren't so stressed i mean by yeah, yeah. having mm -hmm. to produce you're selling culture to the masses for amusement for entertainment mm -hmm. i mean there's you and we can go on and on and on and on so yep. Yep. are we are you know are we artists or are you know are we creators of culture are we makers of culture what are we or are we just essentially products of of a very massive system that's just you know we're cogs in that in that whole cycle that wheel so to speak of a capitalist system yeah i mean i i agree with you totally like literally mm. i think the more the deeper that i go into the kind of work that i do the more i realize that really and truly my role should not exist mm. and it's what kind I of if, I was going to say it's kind of a form of, it can be seen as a form of exploitation because you're, you know, you're, to make money, you exploit, <laughs> you yeah. know, that's, yeah. that's, that's what yeah. you do. But I guess it's, it's not, it's not, I guess most people would just say, well, it's not that bad if it's your own culture, because then you, you know your culture, so you understand the sensitivities. But I don't know. I think even when it's your own culture, it, it can be problematic. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, but I think the thing is, is that you can't, you have to, you, yeah, you can't get away from it. So it's like you might as well make the system work for you. And I mm -hmm. think that that's, you know, that's basically what it comes down to. And what, so like Carnival, I think, is able to exist because people have found ways to make money off of it. Mm hmm. So. Yeah. It's Have like finding that, that balance between, yeah, and it's, especially if you're deciding to be this culture maker or this artist, you have to find a way to fit into that system mm -hmm. that can sustain yourself and your practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I you mean, have to find where you fit in. Yeah. I mean, have you heard about, like in London, what's been happening in the past few years with Notting Hill Carnival? um not exactly tell me yeah i mean i don't know all the details i mean i lived in london for like what over 10 years but i only got up to notting hill a few times but there's a lot of conversation because i i think what they're trying to do now is make notting hill less caribbean and a bit more of like this 
street party, so to speak. <laughs> and a big part of that is because they realize that they can make money from it. So right. they're diluting wow. what wow. Notting Hill initially was, which was that area in London where a lot of Bajans and Trinis and Caribbean people settled. And you know, wherever we go, we take our culture with us. And now they're trying to make it less of that. And like when you, I, I, like people who, like relatives of mine and friends who lived in London many years ago said to me, when you came to Notting Hill, it was like the Caribbean, you know, proper. But now you see a lot of dance hall and you see like a lot of groups in there that aren't even from the Caribbean. And it's just becoming something completely different. And they've rebranded it as Europe's largest street festival. <laughs> yeah. And, and again, I don't know all the details. I'm not involved in that, you know, in the, uh -huh, uh -huh. I only know the little from, from when I, from when I used to go, when I used to live there, whatnot, but yeah, that's, that's a perfect example of how, you know, mainstream recognizes, okay, there's, there's some money to be made here. And, um, how can we do this? You know? Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I, may, I may have glimpsed an article to that effect that, you know, that a lot of the people who play mass or are in the parade now are not necessarily West Indian. But, you know, I have to say, and this is, it's not a critique, but it's an observation. Uh -huh. I think that has a lot to do with the fact that perhaps economically, mm -hmm. the West Indians in that part of the UK are not they, they, they're not advanced because that wouldn't happen in Canada at Caravana. Right. That, and that wouldn't happen in New York, in Brooklyn, mm -hmm. because I think West Indians in New York have economic power. They have a lot of economic power, West Indians. Right. In, they've got money, they've got clout, you know? And I think the same can be said for the West Indians in Toronto. And I think when you've got the money, we know that speaks. And I'm wondering if the West Indians who live in London don't have the same kind of economic clout as they do in, say, Toronto. Because I've been to Caravana, I'm sure you have. We all have at some point. And it's like, Caravana is Caribbean. <laughs> there is nothing Canadian about Caravana other than Canadians joining in like oh we love this thing but it is 100% Caribbean mm -hmm. and the same can be said for you know um, Carnival in London and Miami and all the major cities of the world so I wonder if it's a reflection of just the, the, the economic conditions yeah. yeah and the strength or lack thereof of the strength of the Car that Caribbean community in London because if you own your culture like we were saying how can someone come along and just say we're going to make this Europe's largest street festival what's that can you imagine that happening in New York I don't know I mean like the yeah. Met the Met part like the Met in New York actually know that you know West Indian Parade kind of is a big deal like everybody knows like it's the Caribbean thing it's owned by Caribbean people I mean the mayor it's like such a big deal you know and in Canada in Toronto as well so yeah it's just an observation yeah, I mean, and I think that that's the, that's also one of the downfalls of, of monetizing to that extent is that if you end up, people get left out. Mm -hmm. So it's like people, and so like, this has also been a um, sort of a big um, realization for me mm -hmm. in some of the work that I've done is that you monetize so much that the people whose culture you're using don't get to benefit. Oh, yeah. 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 So we get left out of the paradigm because we can't afford to pay for an, a thousand dollar costume. No, we can't. You know what I mean? So there's also that part of it. But again, it's it's tricky. But you I think that there's no way of doing it where somebody doesn't lose. But you can figure out ways that the losses are less. <laughs> You know, because the thing is, these carnivals bring in so much money. Like, for example, going back to Caravana. Caravana, I think one year, I think I read it brings in like, like four to 500 million Canadian dollars into the yeah. Canadian economy. That is major money for yeah. the city of Toronto. And this is people from all over the world. So yeah. I'm wondering if, you know, same thing in London. Okay, we can make some huge money off of this. But the thing is, it, Caravana is still caribbean owned and i'm wondering if that's because in toronto they've got their associations and their networks mm -hmm. and they make sure that like you said we this is our thing and it may be big and be making money but we're going to benefit from it and maybe the trinidadians and the bajans and you know everybody else everybody works together and it just kind of it just kind of yeah works out. but that's a lot of money for toronto that's a it lot is. you know I mean, so this brings me to another point where it's like 
so there's the side of being a culture maker that is that is related to your financial viability as a person right mm -hmm. so if mm -hmm. you want to do this like for a living but then there's also the side of it that you do as part of your identity right mm -hmm. so if, if you're i don't know jane lawyer mm -hmm. and you grew up in a family that i don't know had a choir or whatever and you decide that you want to keep that going with your two neighbors down the street how do you do that what i guess how do you do that without making it about capital because mm -hmm. i think that that's the thing that people also get confused with everything that you do as a creative venture does not necessarily have to relate to a profit so i think that all yeah so some people get caught up in this cycle of well i need to get paid yes i need to you know what i mean mm -hmm. whereas mm -hmm how do you maintain a creative practice or a cultural practice that is within which the reward is doing it as opposed to making it instantly or immediately about money mm. Mm. right so there's that other side of it not every practice creative artistic whatever you do is meant to be for sale or is meant to be um attached to financial gain mm, something to think about yeah 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 something definitely something to think about and you've got to balance that because you're always going to have you know people who say but i need i need to make money i need to get paid <laughs> how am i going to eat how am i going to pay my bills how am i going to make a life and hence going back to the what the conversation we're talking about which is charting a life as a culture maker you've got to decide very early on what are you going to do and how are you going to do it and what is what are you going to do for profit and what is just going to be for the love of the culture right exactly exactly and sometimes those two things will never meet that's and that's the reality mm, okay sometimes yeah. they do and honestly you know like as much as you know you can say that there are steps you can take and investments and all of this like at the end of the day a lot of times it's the luck of, it's the luck of the irish it's like who shows up in the right place at the right time with the right skills that mm. gets, you know, that it, that shoots to fame. Mm. So, and I'm not saying that to like downplay anybody's work or to like make this seem like really trivial, which it's not, but, um, yeah, some things you do for money, some things you do for love, some things you decide to do for money because you know that they could be profitable. Mm. And so those things can support the things you want to do just for the love. Mm -hmm. Uh, some things, those two things, meet, sometimes those two things meet after years and years and years of grinding. Sometimes mm -hmm. they don't. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so it's figuring out that things will be fluid and that you have to be able to go along for the ride. Mm. Yeah. Hmm. Very, very interesting. Okay. So, all right. So you've made these decisions. You're thinking about what you want to do. Well, you've thought of it, whatnot. You figured out some ways to, to monetize and then what it's all implementation after that and trial and error. Yeah, sadly. So yeah, implementation, trial and error. And then eventually it's like building, it's like building out a workflow, building out a process. Mm. Right? So if, if I don't know, every other month I'm going to do a masterclass, it's like, okay, so I need to invest this much, this much every month to pay for studio space, to pay for rehearsal time, to pay for marketing. Yeah, it's making it sustainable. And I think that, you know, that's usually where is the hardest part. It's like, okay, now you, you've made a thing. You know people like it. You know people are willing to pay for it. How do you keep it going? Mm, yeah. And yeah. this is the point at which I think a lot of people end up like falling off because even if you built something on love, on community, on friendship, once it starts making money, those models don't work anymore. Like people are gonna gonna want or gonna expect to get paid for things, mm. right? Mm. So yeah, it's finding ways to keep it sustainable. Wow, yeah, and that's where the business head comes into play. And a lot, can you speak to the fact that there are a lot of creatives and creative entrepreneurs who are good at the creative side but not good at the business side can you speak to that for a little like do you yeah. ever really 
meet someone who's kind of got the whole package because I think a lot of creatives struggle with, with the business side, you know, the making money side of, of, of their, of their, you know, yeah. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Uh, I mean, and by no means do I have this figured out, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, um, I think that the thing with creative people, especially the ones that don't have that good business sense mm-hmm. is that, they feel like it's a failure if they have to stop creating or if they Mm -hmm. have to pause on creating to build capacity in other areas. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And sadly, as I mean, as far as I'm concerned, as far as I know, if you're doing both, Mm -hmm. there are times when you're going to get to be more creative. And then there are times when you're not going to be as creative because you have to deal with the business things. Okay. So it's being able to say, I'm a dancer, but for this month, I can't really dance that much because I need to do the bookkeeping and write this grant and file my taxes. Right. Oh, God, yeah. File your taxes. You got to pay your taxes, guys. <laughs> right. Right. Can I get your accountant? Don't play. Exactly. So I think that a lot of, a lot of artists aren't willing to do that, unwilling to sacrifice in that way. And so that's when you, get, you run into trouble, basically, because those things have to get done, whether you are good at doing them, whether you want to do them or not. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, you know, like there's schools of thought that believe that artists shouldn't have to do that, right? That there should be networks in place to support them so that they, they can stay being creative. They can stay um, being artistic. But the reality is that that isn't true. Yeah. Or, and especially for people in the in emerging markets in the mm-hmm. developing world, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, the, the idea that we will have like all of these resources at our fingertips so it's that not we can be an artist, it's, it's not, not happening. Here. No, yeah, it's no. not going to happen. Um, and I think that <laughs> to that end, I think that a lot of people in our in our neck of the woods. Mm-hmm. In, emerging and developing countries and communities because I'm in the States, but you know, the same, the paradigm exists. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, is that we believe that we should have that same level of access that people who have generational wealth and live different lifestyles than we do, that we should have the same amount of resources. And so we lament that fact, but the, I, the reality is that it's not true and it's not coming anytime soon. No, no. Right? So if you're an artist and you're working within, you know, your Caribbean community, your developing community, your immigrant community, whatever, mm-hmm. you're going to have to wear a number of hats for a long yeah. time. Mm-hmm. And so lamenting that we don't have access to certain things isn't helpful. And I feel like a lot of artists also get stuck in that. Yeah. And also, it's sadly, not all the time, but sadly, your own community won't accept you until they feel like you've made it. Yeah. Yep. That happens a lot. And yeah. a lot of immigrant slash developing slash ethnic, non-white, whatever you want to call it, okay? Communities where it's like, mm, what is she doing? Uh, and they kind of sit back and they watch. Or, you know, it's like, let's see if she can get big first and then we'll, then yes. we'll, hop, we'll hop on that. Yeah, yes. You're not I mean, going to get that support a lot of the times. Because that, that culture of that kind of uh, operating that way or doing that kind of business or whatever it is, it, it doesn't exist in that community yet. The community has not developed in that way yet. They're still very conservative in what, in what they do. Yeah. And we, we're looking to external structures to mm-hmm. tell us what we should value. Exactly. Exactly. And how we should value it. So, you know, it's a whole cycle. Yeah. I have too many thoughts and, and rants and um, No, but this is good. This I is important. About this. No, but this is important. You you need to do your own podcast specifically on this. I encourage you to do it. Do your own podcast simply on this. Because I think it's these are very important topics that a lot of creatives and artists and curators need to discuss amongst themselves. And I imagine these conversations, I'm not privy to these conversations, but I imagine they are happening, but it's, it's important to, to just keep talking about these things. Like for example, branding, mm-hmm. if you're, if you're a culture maker, I feel like you've got to be your own brand. You yeah. know, you've got to think of yourself as, okay, I am, 
I am a curator, just like I would curate in a museum. What is my brand? Who am I? How am I putting myself out there? People are coming to see my exhibition, i.e. me. What yep. do I want them to see? And you really have to think of yourself as this, this entity all on, yep. all on its own. And that has got to, to come through, like, literally, in, if it's skin, like, every pore, okay? Like, every social right. media, the way you speak, the way you carry yourself, you've got to really visibly represent this this idea yeah and the, but that's the that's the line right off that thing about who are you for yourself and who are you as this brand right mm. so it's it's creating that line in the sand for yourself but knowing that basically you are your own commodity in a sense right yeah so it's it's also treating yourself in the same way that you would treat a product that you created, right? How do you ensure your personal durability mm -hmm. as this product or as this entity, as this brand, mm -hmm. um, just like you would something that was like tangible? Yeah. Right? So if you're a dancer, you know, is it like going to class, going to the gym, going to here? If you're a curator, it maybe it's in um, research and professional development and how you carry yourself um absolutely yeah 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 it, the networks that you're a part of and that you create for yourself so it's yeah it's there's a lot to consider and the work is especially in culture making mm -hmm. it, it's basically endless so you have to find like find your groove mm -hmm. um, so that you can do this work over time yeah like you said sustainability is the, is the key word and what about bringing others along because a lot of the times going back to you know being the minority if you're living outside if you're living a predominantly white culture for example one person gets into these very white um traditionally white spaces should they be expected to bring others along um and rise, like, you know, right. give other people like them opportunities as well? Yeah. Or is it, is it just like, okay, one, one of us has gotten in, hey, great, let's celebrate that one person and that's it? So here's what I think about that. I think automatically my reply is yes. But I think people on the outside, so the people who are looking at this one person who's gotten in, who is like, she ain't do nothing for me, she ain't bringing nobody, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, 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 of course, yeah, yeah. People in those roles have to act strategically. Mm -hmm. And so it may not look like they're bringing people along with them. But they but are. Sometimes they are. But it takes the gestation period. It's like three, four years, five, six years. Maybe they have to like um, prove their worth to the organization first. for a few years before first. they can be like, okay, so can we bring the next back person in now? You know what I mean? Exactly. So and that's exactly what it is. And that's such an important point because it's so easy to judge these people, but they're still trying to make it themselves. That's why sometimes a perfect example is someone like Beyonce. Now that she's made it, you see her doing everything now, like wearing African artist clothes and mm -hmm. African this and doing all these things that she never did before because now she's got the clout and the power and now she's bringing everybody else up with her and putting all these people we haven't heard of in her videos and this and that. But for the first few years of her career, she was really mainstream because she had to be. Right, exactly. And so you decide, she was like, okay, this is what they want. I'm going to give it to them. And I'm yeah. going to do this for four or five years and earn my place mm -hmm. in pop stardom. And then mm -hmm. I'm going to do what I want. So again, that's another consideration she, that she decided to make in order to make herself and her brand sustainable. And now she's so bad. She doesn't even give interviews. She's like, I don't need y'all. I don't need media. <laughs> Listen. I mean, because she doesn't do, the fact that Beyonce doesn't do interviews just says how powerful she is. She just releases an album or a song and she's like, yeah, eat off of that and leave me alone. <laughs> yep, exactly. I love it. I think yeah. it's brilliant. It is. But, it is. It is. Yeah, but so, you know, like, I think that there's a way that the public likes to look at some of these people and expect them to do more or a lot, but those people also need support in other ways because they're the kind of work that they're doing to maintain their status, maintain their position is already huge. Yeah. It's already immense. Yeah. In addition to what the kind of thinking that they probably have about their community and about their responsibility. Do you know what I mean? So I think that there's a way that people like to tear those people in, in certain 
um, high visibility rolls down that isn't always merited. Yeah, and I think it's a little presumptuous to, yeah. to, say, to say, oh, well, she's in that role. Why isn't she helping the rest of us? I mean, not, first of all, like you said, maybe she is, but you just don't see it or hear about it. But secondly, you should see this as inspiration and motivation that, wow, she can do it, I can do it too. You shouldn't just assume that, okay, she's got to help me. Like, that shouldn't be your your like main your your main like your train of thought i feel like there's something wrong with that like okay she's made it or he's made it now he's just supposed to help everybody else i, I just don't something about that is just seems a bit off like you don't want to work now you just assume that because somebody else has made it they're automatically supposed to help you but even though it's great and like you said they should they really don't have to right well yes but and also so for instance um, my, one of my best friends, like we have this conversation all the time when we see like one of our peers or one of our mentors, like move into a role that they've been working for or that, you know, they've been granted because of the kind of like trailblazing work they've been doing. Like one of the questions we ask ourselves is like, oh my, okay, how are we going to support this person in this new role? Exactly. Like, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. To support them. Because nobody makes it anywhere on their own. And right. I believe that we all got to where we are because of the invisible or visible hands that have been moving along, you know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's a good way to look at it instead of, well, why, what is this person going to do for us? You kind of say, well, how can I support them? Because if, if they're that, if they're already there and if we can support them more, how much further can they get? And then everybody can win. When one person wins, we all win. Kind of. Right. Thing. Exactly. Yeah. When I shine, you shine. Definitely. Definitely. So, wow. Okay. So in closing then, what, what thoughts would you like to leave with us about curating? I feel like we touched on so many things, curating a life as a culture maker. Um, hmm. I don't know. I feel like we said so much. I think maybe in closing, yeah. yeah. It's finding ways to stay true to yourself within, within all of it. Mm. Because, at least for me personally, this kind of work is um, very, very much tied to who I am as a person. Mm -hmm. So it's finding ways to stay true to that mm -hmm. and honoring this responsibility I feel to my community and to my friends and family. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Mm. Yeah. Okay, good, 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 good. So where can we find you, Candice? Where can we find you? Tell Everywhere. us all about your websites, your social media, everything. Okay, so uh, on social media, Instagram, you can find me at CanDanceFit. Mm -hmm. So just like those three words, all of one, CanDanceFit with one T. Mm -hmm. On Twitter, it's CanDanceFit with two Ts. Okay. Um, my company dance caribbean collective is on facebook as dance caribbean collective uh mm -hmm. same thing on instagram on twitter it's dance carib co mm -hmm. um you know because you kind of too many characters for twitter mm -hmm. uh, my okay. website is candicedancefitness.com um dance caribbean's website is dancecaribbeancollective.com and i also just started a blog oh nice sort of like on you know these these ruminations these two thoughts that travel through my head all hours of the night mm -hmm. that's culture.blogspot.com. well i'm glad you're blogging because then you can talk about all the things because i feel like you've got so much in your head yes yeah the blog yeah. i think is it's gonna be helpful even if to just help me sleep at night yeah i mean when you you know you're a creative like you know we were saying and when you've got all this in your head you've got to find your outlet and if that if that if that's blogging or podcasting or whatever it is you've got to let it out because there, there are other people that want that need and not want but need to hear what you have to say yeah yeah definitely definitely I that. and did you give us your email address did email you yes okay. i did not okay candicedancefitness at gmail.com mm-hmm or dancecaribbeancollective at gmail.com. Okay, perfect. And um, is there anything that you need help with or support with, or are you looking to collaborate or partner with anyone or any support at all? Anything you'd like our listeners to, to list to hear and, and maybe reach out to you about or for? Right. Uh, well, Dance Caribbean Collective is going to launch their 
season next year in 2019. So yeah, mm -hmm. the New Traditions Festival that I, we mentioned earlier, which will probably now be a, like a biannual festival every two years, but um, that's the festival that we produce that basically gives a platform to contemporary Caribbean dance mm -hmm. choreographers. So mm -hmm. if you can like the Dance Caribbean page, and if you know of a dancer or choreographer that is like pr producing work that's about the Caribbean in any way, mm -hmm. like point them in the direction of Dance Caribbean Collective or reach out to us and tell them, tell us who they are so that we can find them. So, cause um, basically our goal is for Dance Caribbean Collective to be a hub for people in North America, but also people in the region and possibly people in the wider diaspora, like UK, Toronto. Um, mm -hmm. to, yeah, sort of like know who the other players are in the field, right? So, for sure, for sure, yeah. Um, and we have, you know, there we have a public calendar where people can list classes or workshops or auditions or performances that they're having. Once it has to do Caribbean dance, you can list it on this um, public calendar. Okay. Called DCC Connections. That's on our website. So yeah, if if they can just if they know someone who they think we should know about, tell them, send them our way. Brilliant. Perfect. 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 Well, Candice, thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. I really appreciated um, listening to you, speaking with you, but also thank you for all the work that you do because you are a guardian of culture. You're not just a culture maker, but I see you as a guardian of culture. I think you are keeping culture alive in, in all its shapes and forms. I think you're conserving culture, promoting culture, strengthening culture, all of that stuff. I mean, even what you just, what you just mentioned, it's like you're giving a sense of purpose and unity to something so much bigger than yourself. I think you're very inspiring. I think all, everything that you do is inspiring. I, I imagine you don't get a lot of sleep, but that's all right. You know, you can sleep <laughs> later on in life. <laughs> No, that's not, right. that's, that not right. I, that's not right. That's not right. Like a few weeks ago, I, I put up a Facebook post. I was like, we all need sleep because I learned that sleep is connected to literally every disease out there. Lack of sleep is connected yeah. to everything. I'm like, people, we need to sleep. This is not cool. So um, yes, please get sleep. But anyway, I digress. Thank you for, for all of, of this work and for being a guardian of culture. So next time you come on the podcast, we can discuss how to maintain being a guardian of culture. So you're, you've moved from being a maker of culture, a curator of culture to being a guardian of culture. But I think you're all of those things anyway. So. Thank you so much. Thank yeah. you so much, Joanne, for giving me this opportunity. Yeah, it's been, it's nice to be able to bounce these, these ideas off someone. And, and thank you for the work that you're doing, especially with bringing some of these stories to, to the community of folks who are, you know, forging ahead in things that haven't been done before, mm -hmm. breaking down. So, you know, we need each other. So thank you. Absolutely. My pleasure. It's all about getting the, the cross-pollination of, of cultures and of going because who knows, there's somebody somewhere in a tiny little, you know, remote place listening and going, oh, I want to do that. Or maybe I'll email Candice. So that's what it's all about. Yeah. <laughs> yes. All right. Brilliant. Okay. All right. Rare ones. And that is it. Podcast episode number 75 with Candice. This was really good. Thank you again, Candice. And until next time. Bye for now.